Welcome. This is episode two of Mostly Hairless Apes. Today, I want to talk about change. This is Dr. Gene Mesco, a PhD doctor, which means I get paid to think about stuff. Nice work if you can get it. If you listen to the first podcast, I talked about belief. Belief is an important thing in the Church of Science, just like in other churches. Today, I want to talk about change. Change is based on the fact that life runs on information. Information comes in two forms. Knowledge and belief. Knowledge is stuff we can prove. Belief is stuff that we can't prove. Knowledge changes as we learn more about how the universe works. That's why science is so great, because it does the best job of generating more knowledge. As we generate more knowledge, our beliefs can change. I've heard ignorance is bliss. You might have heard that one. If you're not one of the blissfully ignorant, you usually want more information. Even if you don't want more information, you usually get more every day. We do live in the information age. We can be ignorant and ignore it or adapt and grow. It's one of the basic choices in life. Most of us want more information because we understand we don't know everything. You know what they say about people who say they know everything. If you're not content with gaps in the information you have about life and the universe and everything, you seek out more information. Knowledge is easy in the big picture, I think. Knowledge includes things like atoms and electrons. No one's ever seen electrons zipping around atomic nuclei. That's our current atomic model of that. We have a lot of knowledge about how electrons behave. We can build circuits for devices that support a global communication network, flight in and out of the atmosphere, and so many other things, all of the AI that's coming. All of that's electrons moving in circuits. Electrons themselves, they may be pixies living in clown spaceships shrunken down to amazingly small size. You may believe that, but it won't change the fact that electrons behave certain ways when we set them up in circuitry and turn on the power. It doesn't really matter what they are. Nobody's ever seen one. But we do have the knowledge that allows us to use them to make the world different. Most of us would agree that our knowledge of electronics makes the world a better place. Some disagree, like Murray. Murray gave me the pixie hypothesis. If someone believes differently than you, they may do things that you find unusual. Murray treats electronics with great restraint. He worries about the pixies running out of space fuel. Our beliefs shape our behaviors whenever we are working with incomplete knowledge. If I was an electrical engineer and a member of the Church of Science, I would believe that electrons are tiny fundamental particles that have no inherent life of their own, and therefore it's perfectly reasonable to make them dance in our circuits to the utter joy of modern society. An electrical engineer within the Church of Science will have no reservations about the well-being of electrons, not like Murray. The only significant questions are about things like what power supply is delivering them into the circuitry. Belief influences us all, though, because no one has complete knowledge. Most of us will burn our electrons well into the evening. Murray will shut his off so they can rest. Unless we're blissfully ignorant, we always want more information. We always want to find out more things. And then the information changes us. Every day we confront new things. We meet people, we do some things differently. You may have the most repetitive routine in the history of humanity, but it's not absolute. Time marches on, things change. The seasons change. Night and day changes. Change is the only constant. That gets traced back to one of the ancient Greeks. Do you think Greeks got sort of the geeks at some point? Is that where that comes from? One of the ancient Greeks, Heraclitus, said this. He said, you can never step in the same river twice. We all live in the flowing river of life. 
life works because of change. Every living thing must constantly exert some effort directed at staying alive. That effort, that work, involves causing changes in the world. The alternative is death. Death results from failing to organize the changes that are constantly happening to living beings. The order that arises from life is the continual battle against disorder. That's the basic description of the scientific knowledge of entropy. Entropy is thought to be a physical basic property of the universe. It's described by mathematical calculations about how systems would move toward a thermodynamic equilibrium. How does the energy get balanced in a system? Living systems operate at a disequilibrium. We always take in more energy and we give off random heat and waste products and molecules, but we have to maintain that energy inflow and organize it. That's why we need information. Living beings are open thermodynamic systems. Entropy only increases in a closed system. We continually need new sources in order to resist entropy in our local open system. That's why change is a constant. If you want to get into the specifics, we can go to the writings in the Church of Science. Rudolf Clausius is one of the first ones who defined the concept of entropy. He wrote A Mechanical Theory of Heat, an exciting page turner from the 1850s, and you have to do the math. When you do the math, you end up with some interesting knowledge about how matter and energy interact. You also get a description of work from a scientific perspective. Now, I know some of you are ambivalent about work. You may hate your job. You may love your job. But we all have to get work done. And not only for work for life, work for society, too. That gets into artificial society and artificial selection. We'll talk about that in a minute. Work is defined about in science. It's all about getting things done. It's the essence of life because humans as living beings have to do it all the time. That's how life's maintained. With humans in consciousness, there's an intentionality. Even with non-living things, there's a focus on a goal. When life fails, it no longer controls the change. The world moves on without it. You're dead and gone. For billions of years of life on Earth, the only focus of life was staying alive and reproducing. That's evolution by natural selection. Descent with modification, as Charles Darwin phrased it. Life works because it maintains order within a given environment. The irony is that while living systems maintain order, they do it at the expense of increasing disorder in their environment. The entropy is displaced to the larger external system. The core of maintaining order against the changing world is information. For billions of years, it was just DNA and cell metabolism battling the forces of nature. Then consciousness came along. Humans could add in whatever we could imagine. Just like bodies need food, minds need information. Minds evolved as what-if machines. A tip of the hat to Stan Lee and Marvel for that one. But that's the way I like to think about brains. We get bored if we do the same thing over and over. We're always looking for new possibilities. That's what gives consciousness an evolutionary edge. That's what makes consciousness fit in an evolutionary perspective gives us the ability to ask questions without risking our lives. It's the core of evolutionary artificial selection. So for billions of years, it was just natural selection, working on DNA and cells. Then consciousness created new options. We think and change our environments. We acknowledge the people who caused significant change in the past because we understand how important it is. We take note of the great thinkers, and we appreciate when someone discovers or creates new information. 
Now, whether it's good or bad, that edges into the belief system side of information. And when we discover things, we discover knowledge about the universe that tells us how things work. My daughter liked to say, as a happy gun user, she would say, guns don't kill people, gaping holes in vital organs kill people. <laughs> it's not a matter of a gun, a gun's a tool. It's a matter of what you do with it and who has it. That's where we get into those ideas about things, why we have to talk about evolution of society to go along with all of this information we have. Before consciousness evolved, natural selection provided all the answers. Either some combination of cells worked to survive and reproduce, or it didn't. Species came and went. But humans came along with our brains, and we've been at it for tens of thousands of years. And we've been picking up the change. We did older things and slowly built agriculture and societies. We've had historical periods. We talk about the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And we went into, and more recently, we've had the Enlightenment, supposedly, back a few hundred years ago, along with scientific and industrial revolutions. And they all changed the world. We all want to change the world, as John Lennon told us. But how are we going to do it? That's the critical issue. How we change the world depends on what we believe is a good thing and what's a bad thing. American politics has evolved in two sides that at least have some interesting names associated with them. There's the left, liberal, progressive, blue side of things where they want to make more changes. There's the right, conservative, red side of things that wants to minimize change or perhaps even go back. Well, we agree, hopefully, after the first part of this podcast, that change is the only constant. The question now shifts to the rate of change, the direction of change. How, when, and where? And of course, the big question, why? Why should we go in one direction versus another? Should we go forward? Should we go backwards? Should we try to stay the same as much as possible? Conserving things means to keep them as they've been. It's not a bad thing to want to maintain things. The question is, do we need to change? It would be better if we changed. Those are big belief questions. And that's the problem with that. So beliefs, as I said before, are always balanced by knowledge in terms of our information. And that's why the issues nowadays with fake news and all of those fun things are so challenging. You know, a long time ago, we realized smoking was bad for your health. Science was in. All the chemicals that the people were putting in cigarettes to control the burn were causing health problems, inducing cancers. We got all that information and we had that knowledge, but we didn't act on it. It took us decades to act on it, stop kids from smoking and then say, oh, that's a bad thing. And, and there was some information that was put out by the tobacco companies that was not the best information in terms of their advertising. And they ended up losing a multi-billion dollar legal case because of that. And likewise, we figured out fossil fuels were a great source of energy. They've been powering the industrial revolution for the last few centuries. But then we realized, oh, wait a minute, back in the 60s, we actually realized there was a problem with putting too much carbon in the atmosphere. And so we've shifted away just like smoking. Eh, well, maybe we haven't shifted away. <laughs> and we've got some political and military entanglements because of those easy to use oil in the Middle East. And we didn't do that. Hmm. So it's obviously hard to make changes sometimes, especially when there's lots of factors involved. And science is not always given the knowledge science provides isn't always used to make the best decision possible. We make economic decisions and we make other decisions. And that's some of the big choices we make. And I'm here to say, yeah, those are we making the best choices possible. Uh, one of the things that we've been doing 
organizing our societies for the last few centuries started about 500 years ago. If you go back about five centuries, we could talk about the colonial era. And what happened in the colonial era? Well, it started with Spain and Portugal, England and France got in on it, and Netherlands. All of those European powers had access to new technology. People came up with new information about sailing and military weapons, and they provided new navigational aids and were able to, and then industrial manufacturing kicked in. And all of that allowed them to start expanding their markets and build wealth. But their economic systems, well, we've been fighting and trading in that. We've been doing it for thousands of years, but it really accelerated the last few years as the Western European nations branched out all over the planet. And we've had this colonial mode that's been running society. And one of the challenges that came out of that was an altered belief system. Because as the mostly Caucasian white folks out of Europe ran into all these other people, the question became, well, are those really people? Obviously, the issues of things like slavery uh, that came out of controlling those markets indicated that some people thought they weren't really humans, that other people were inferior. And that's one of the beliefs that came out of having this dominant military technology that allowed you to give orders to people and control those markets. But they, they did a pretty good job of dominating world trade, whatever else you want to say about it. I mean, I think we've got to go with the idea that at the very least, it was an efficient mode of organizing society. You can't deny the fact that what came out of Western Europe over the last several centuries has come to dominate a lot of societies around the planet. And that's this colonial mode of thinking. And it synergized lots of different adaptations. Natural selection synergizes adaptations, and natural selection does it with natural selection. Organisms mutate, they adapt and evolve, and they fill different niches in ecosystems. We have in biology what we would call producers and consumers and predators and prey and pathogens and hosts. This orchestra of life producing multiple symphonies. When humans do artificial selection, create variations as well. If you study your anthropology or your sociology, you go back, there's lots of variations in ancient cultures. But eventually we settled on some really basic ones. And they all fit, I think, in under a hypothesis that I've been working with here at Mostly Hairless Apes that social evolution operates on three major adaptations, belief systems, governments, and economies. Those are how we group our information to organize our societies. Governments set up rules to regulate behavior. The only real alternative to government and civil law is war. You can have the law of the jungle, or you can have the rule of laws. That's obviously a, a thing that's being tested right now. Economies exist to manage trade. Humans always need certain things, and trading is the best way we've come up with to get what we need. And so we set values within markets. We trade, and prices get manipulated and go higher and lower based on supply and demand. And we work with that, and governments usually work to help stabilize those markets. And that's something that works primarily in the areas of knowledge. Obviously, uh, whatever something costs is what it costs at the market. You either have the money to buy it or you don't. A written-down rule, if we all agree that that's the law, we accept penalties if we break those rules and we go from there. The belief systems obviously are a little different. That's the other side of information. But whereas governments and economies primarily operate from knowledge that can be stated pretty clearly, belief systems tells us why we're doing these things, why we should have these laws, why should things cost so much, or should we give something away for free? 
And that's one of the things about using an evolutionary perspective here. If we accept that, then the question becomes, why are we doing something if it's based on belief systems? Which belief system are we using? I, of course, am advocating for science. Uh, because for the longest time, belief systems were dominated by religions. If you look at the last big European empire, the United Kingdom, they used religion and economies, governments to synergize into uh, a major empire. I mean, that monarchy was the anchoring force. And by the end of the 19th century, England was ruling a quarter of the planet. They had the strongest military. They had a monarch, Queen Victoria, who was just keeping everything straight. They had the Bank of England regulating commerce and it evolved into the central bank of the empire. It's the model for most banking institutions up to today. And the Church of England were along with belief in the Christian deity who helped promote things like the Protestant work ethic, where if you keep your nose to the grindstone and you're a good capitalist, your reward will be in heaven. All of this presented an idea that our society could work really well. And when you take over a quarter of the planet, you're doing something right, at least in terms of maintaining your social organization. And one of the things that comes out of any society is sort of an us versus them belief. Either you're with us or against us. If we're all doing things a certain way, most of the benefits will fall to the group and we'll have to deal with other believers or non-believers, other societies. They either need to be converted and assimilated or dealt with in some other way. People under, under a given rule would have had a higher standard of living than citizens not. And that would have been a good thing for the British. Maybe not so much if you weren't British. But adaptations only persist for as long as they work. If they're not making life better, if they're not helping promote things, then evolution sneaks in, mutations occur, changes occur. People get new ideas and they induce changes. And if you start selecting against an adaptation, they fade towards extinction. And that's what evolution teaches us. Living systems adapt by generating new combinations that optimize living conditions. When it's just natural selection, then it's all about how do I stay healthy? How do I get enough food? How do I produce enough offspring? But when we added artificial selection, we go about with our economies and our governments and our belief systems and we say, what's the best combination? When things go wrong, we call for changes. And that's what happened over the last hundred years. That's what's made the modern world so interesting. Because for several centuries, those colonial powers of Europe were up and running empires. And they were running them primarily on human labor. Which is why slavery was an okay thing. Because you had to have those lower classes to maintain the, the higher standard of living for the ruling classes. The government was primarily built on monarchy. The aristocracy had people who were supposed to be on top of everything because they were better than the rest of us. Uh, the blue bloods, as it were, and they owned everything. So the capitalist economy grew out of the Industrial Revolution and was worked for that ruling class. And some of it trickled down. The empire was stable as long as there was enough to go around for everybody. But then the Industrial Revolution really changed things. You had those ruling classes and you had all of a sudden now you could get more people getting involved in production. You didn't have to have a basic primarily on biology. That's one of the things that really changed socially with the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, three out of four people, it's estimated, worked on farms. We were busy socially just making enough food to make sure everybody could eat. After the Industrial Revolution, we started to make machines do that. We didn't need as many people. This has been one of the problems of the modern era. The economic system that we use, based on supply and demand, capitalist economics, once we started building machines 
to do our work for us, we didn't need as many people. I mean, it went so far as for people to decide that like even black people were human and we got rid of slavery in the 1800s. It's not a coincidence that's coordinated with the Industrial Revolution. Whether or not people believed that or not was a separate question. But the economics became the dominant feature and we shifted away from that production, but it also shifted ownership and wealth away from the aristocracy. Because any decent businessman could build a business and make some money. So now you had more economic power distributed among people. And that's been fun the last few centuries. The middle classes have expanded. Uh, most of us have gotten that. That's when we talk about being great again. Most of us think at the point when even a common laborer could have a standard of living similar to nobles. You think about our modern world. The average worker right now has stuff that kings would have been envious a hundred years ago. All the technology that's evolved from the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution and our capitalist economy have distributed goods and services around the planet. But now the question becomes, what do we do with that? Because what happened in the 20th century, those aristocracies fell apart. The Industrial Revolution changed all that. We got rid of slaves and we decided slavery is a bad idea. The South lost and needs to get over that. And we all inch our way into the general knowledge base that we're all the same, that humans are not this huge thing. Darwin threw out his big idea of evolution and that threw a monkey wrench into those core beliefs for the royals. So what happens? By the start of the 1900s, democracy really became the big idea and the royals really blew it because they got us involved in what they originally called the Great War. Well, we come, what most of us now call World War I was originally called the Great War. And it's marvelously pompous of us as it shows, I think, an example of calling any war great can only be done from the sidelines. If you're not the one grinding it out in the trenches and the idea of the Great War was generated by the guys who weren't in the trenches, the monarchies pushed that along. They basically, the colonial powers all ran into each other and burned off a lot of resources and blood and treasure. And eventually they fell off their thrones. Russia throughout the czar, democracy movements sprang up. And the same thing happened economically too. A lot of labor movements started all through the 1800s into the 1900s. Labor movements were a big thing because aristocratic royal dictators actually were just expanded into a lot of economic dictators. We had the robber barons here in the Gilded Age in America at the start of the 20th century. And so there were lots of democratic movements. And what did they do? They all ran up against the remaining entrenched powers of capitalism and monarchy and dictators, really autocracy, if you will. And those dictators subsequently tried their hand at it. They shifted away. They said, all right, we don't need the bloodlines. We're not going to acknowledge that some humans are significantly different and they should be kings. And so Hitler and Stalin and Mao all tried to be dictators and the people said, no, nope, nope, we're not handling that. And so they all got bumped out and we, and we obviously fought about it. We had World War II and then the Korean War and Vietnam and we've been doing this for, like I said, this is where we're finally coming to the end of the colonial era. And I think that's where we are right now with American politics. The conservative call to make America great again, I think really is trying to get back to that idea of why shouldn't we be in charge? If we have the biggest military and we control the banks, but how did we get there? America rose to the top really by default. We were the last industrialized nation standing after all the bombs stopped dropping. We figured out that nuclear thing. And everybody had to say, wait a minute. All right, we're not going to do that military thing. 
obviously, we figured out ways around that, and we do limited warfare now. We haven't had a world war, technically, going on almost 100 years. But we shifted all that work over from war into consumer goods, and we got rid of the monarchs. And what we did is we let the capitalist economy become the dominant operating principle. And capitalism actually works really well with democracy, with the idea that if I put in the work, I get money. That's the really great idea. That's a, that's a really great synergistic system. But the problem is evolution selects for efficiencies. And what's happened with the market economy is the, the market economy has become more and more dominated by larger and larger corporations. And we pushed away those old autocrats, but now we're getting these economic adaptations and we get mergers and consolidations, eliminating competition, and we get economic dictators. And they're the ones, whether they're corporations or billionaires, that's the big conflict right now with democracy. And it's not fed family bloodlines, it's just a matter of getting hold of the money. And capitalism can be complementary, but it's about balance. And what's the best synergistic properties of democracy with capitalism? Democracy, unfortunately, is relatively inefficient. If you want everyone to have an equal voice, and you have to listen to all those voices, it gets messy and inefficient. Order comes out having the same rules for everything, and we slowly get things done. But the question you need to ask is, are our rules generated by our government, our theoretical democratic government, are they the same for rich and poor people? If they're not, then we don't really live in a democracy. Then we're living in a plutocracy. In our, and that's, I think, where America is right now. Capitalism works best when everyone has enough capital to exchange goods and services. You want to have that free trade. But right, what we have now are large corporations dominating things and giving more and more rich people. And they're basically becoming new aristocrats. And how are we going to change that? That's going to be the conflict of our time, democracy versus capitalism. Two conflicting evolutionary adaptations. Power shifts away from the many to the few. And just like a democracy might shift to a dictatorship, giving power to the few, an economy can shift to having wealthy individuals controlling the excessive amount of market share, excessive amounts of capital. And everyone is just chasing those profits. And it's only focused on the wealth of those rich people. And that's, there's lots of statistics to back this up. Where we're going right now is, is fewer and fewer. You know, homeownership is down. More debt is increasing among the lower classes. And the wealth at the top is increasing. And that's the question we need to address. How do we change that? That's the biggest group. And it, what's being pushed out there and what most Americans get to deal with is silly questions about other things. <laughs> about beliefs and racism and, and gender and sexuality all of that stuff is really about keeping us off balance. The real big question we have to ask is how do we want to organize our economy to do things like deal with pollution in the environment? How much waste can we keep dumping into the ecosystem? How much should we have for education? How much taxing should we do? Those are all the questions that need to get asked and aren't getting asked. Uh, read any news nowadays and none of those questions come up in terms of any sort of analysis. We need to define something different. We need to look at how we can alter this. Maybe more of us could join the Church of Science and we can embrace the knowledge that we're social primates who've come to dominate the planet and we have access to resources. 
to improve the standard of living, but how can we do that? What would it take? What if we actually shared a little more and took a little less? We'll talk about that next time. <laughs>